Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back in the day, they called The Clash the only band that mattered. And if you remember those years, it was easy to understand why. While the Sex Pistols were always good for an outrageous quote, and we could always depend on the Ramones for a shot of good, goofy energy, The Clash were the most serious of the bunch. They were easily the most political and the most socially aware. I mean, hang on, that, that, that really doesn't do them justice. Let's try this. The Clash were not just aware but militant in their positions, as contrary and as contradictory as some of those stances turned out to be. Let's put it this way. The Clash were passionate in their belief that their agenda could change the world. They tried to change the system and rock and roll pretty much from the ground up, which was pretty ambitious, right? Sure it was. And inevitably, the Clash's expectations of themselves became at odds with reality, and the group broke up for good in 1986. The center just could not hold. Even though The Clash felt that they fell short of their lofty goals, their influence is felt in every chord played by every modern-day band, everyone from U2 and Pearl Jam on down. And none of this legacy would have been possible without John Graham Miller, the guy that we'd all come to know as Joe Strummer. Joe was one of the voices and songwriters in the band, but more important than that, he was The Clash's conscience, their political engine, and the guy who drove their ideology. Joe's gone now. There were a couple of newspaper stories about his death in the last weeks of 2002, but they didn't even come close to doing the man justice. So it's time to make the case for naming Joe Strummer not only one of the greatest figures in punk, but one of the most important people in the history of rock and roll, period. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Joe Strummer and the Clash in the title track of London Calling. That song came out in late 1979, and I'm still amazed by the passion and power of Joe's singing. You want apocalyptic urgency? There you go. You got it. Hello again. I'm Alan Cross. Joe Strummer died of a heart attack on Sunday, December 22, 2002, after taking his dogs for a walk. There was some coverage in the media, but there should have been more. A lot more. Why? Well, because Joe Strummer was the punk and alternative equivalent of John Lennon. If the name Joe Strummer just makes you shrug, 
That sounds like a pretty provocative statement, doesn't it? But if you were ever into The Clash, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For millions of people who came of age musically in the late 70s and early 80s, The Clash were their Beatles. The Clash were more than just a mohawk haircut and some torn clothes. They had a message and they had a mission. They were about integrity and honesty and were their own worst critics. For many, they were the voice of a generation, the only ones who could articulate their rage and alienation. The Clash also enlarged the musical scope of punk rock. They were the ones who insisted that things like rockabilly and reggae could be punk as well. And more than anyone else in the band, people turned to Joe Strummer. He didn't mess with Joe, not when he was with The Clash, nor in the years that followed. This is his story, and by the time we're done, you'll see why Joe was so important to the entire history of rock and roll. Joe Strummer wasn't always a working-class punk with leftist leanings. In fact, the truth is much more interesting than that. Joe began life as a well-bred, privately educated member of the British Empire. He was born John Miller, August 21st, 1952, in Ankara, Turkey. His father was a foreign service diplomat who took the family on his overseas postings. And by the time he was 10, young John had also lived in Cyprus and Cairo and in Mexico City. He and his older brother David began attending a private boarding school in London before moving on to art school, where he briefly flirted with the idea of being a professional cartoonist. But then he was expelled for taking LSD. So much for the cartooning idea. Musically, his heroes were the Beatles and the Beach Boys. But he was also very interested in American folk singer Woody Guthrie. In fact, when he was in his cartoonist phase, Joe went by the name Woody Miller. John didn't so much pick up a guitar until 1972, when he was 20 years old. It was around this time that he met a busker named Timon Dog at the Green Park Tube Stop in London. John was in charge of minding the money in Timon's guitar case, and eventually he asked Timon if he wouldn't mind teaching him a few elementary chords. In 1973, John moved to Wales, where he made a half-assed attempt at attending lectures at the Newport College of Art. And one day, he went to see an old girlfriend who told him to get stuffed. He ended up with some friends who were in the process of forming a band that they called the Vultures. He ended up being their part-time singer and rhythm guitarist. That gig lasted for about a year. Meanwhile, John put food on the table and paid the rent by working in a graveyard. Sometime in 1974, he hitched a ride back to London where he hooked up with Time and Dog again and once again took to busking on street corners. But he got tired of being told to move on by the British Transport Police, so he rounded up a bunch of friends and formed a group called the 101ers. The name comes from the number of the house in West London where all the band members lived. The band did quite well on the pub circuit, playing covers of American R&B songs. And at one time, the 101ers had a full horn section made up of guys in the run from the evil regime in Chile. It was also around this time that John Miller resurrected the name Woody Miller. That lasted for a while before he adopted the name Joe Strummer in early 1975. And this name had everything to do with the way he strummed his guitar. Time and Dog had taught him those rudimentary chords, but Joe was too lazy to learn how to play them the right way. He found shortcuts, which, while were technically ugly, gave him a unique sound and style. It was also around this time that Joe lost all of his posh boarding school accent. Legend has it that his ability to enunciate clearly changed forever when he had his teeth kicked in during a pub brawl. The first song Joe ever wrote was inspired by a girl named Palmolive. And much to everyone's surprise, the song was good enough to be released as a single. It's called Keys to Your Heart. Joe Strummer was the lead singer. Keys, 
Clash Joe Strummer with his old band The 101ers and Keys to Your Heart from 1975. If you're a hardcore Clash fan, see if you can find the one and only album from The 101ers. It's a collection of stuff called Elgin Avenue Breakdown on the Chiswick label. The evening of Tuesday, April 3rd, 1976 proved to be a big night for Joe. That's when he went to see an unknown band called the Sex Pistols at a venue called the Nashville Rooms in the Kensington area of London. After watching them tear through their set, Joe realized that the 101ers were going nowhere. This, whatever it was, was the future. Not long after that show, Joe was approached by two people after the 101ers played a show at the Red Cow Pub. The first guy was named Bernie Rhodes, a would-be manager who wanted to set up a band like the Sex Pistols. The other was Mick Jones, who was already in this band, which was called the London SS. Now, this group featured a rotating lineup that managed to rehearse, sometimes, but never really got around to actually playing a gig. The SS included future members of bands like Generation X and Public Image Limited, and for a while featured an American girl named Chrissy Hind, who of course would later go on to form the Pretenders. Joe agreed to join the London SS just as it broke up. But he and Mick pieced things together with a novice bass player named Paul Simonon, drummer Terry Chimes, and another guitarist named Keith Levine. So yeah, the clash started out as a five-piece. But Keith lasted all of five shows, so he barely counts. Paul Simonon was supposed to be a guitar player, but he didn't get it, so they gave him a bass because it had only four strings instead of six. They gathered at a squat at 22 Davis Road in the Shepherd's Bush area of London. It was a warehouse next to a rail yard. They cleaned it up the best they could and called the space Rehearsal Rehearsal, and it would become their headquarters for the next two years. It was Paul Simonon who came up with the name. After considering a dozen different names, including the Psycho Negatives and the Weak Heart Drops, Paul saw a headline in the London Evening Standard, something about a clash with police. Looking through the rest of the paper, they noticed that the word clash came up more than just about any other. Their first show was August 29, 1976, opening for the Sex Pistols in Sheffield, England. The Clash played as many gigs as they could through the rest of the year, impressing people with their energy and honesty and integrity. That image, however, took a near-fatal blow right from the start, January 25, 1977, when The Clash did the unthinkable. They got a worldwide contract with CBS Records, a major, for £129,000. Although the band's position was that they planned to subvert the record industry from within, uh, that didn't really wash with some of punk's hardcore adherents. So to them, January 25th, 1977, was actually the day punk died. But the Clash were on a mission. A little criticism wasn't about to stop them. And for the next five years, nothing would get in their way. More in a moment. With Joe Strummer's ability to write lyrics about weighty issues and with Mick Jones' sense of melody and arrangement, The Clash started churning out impressive stuff right from the start. All their songs had meaning. They involved social decay, unemployment, racism, police brutality, political and social repression, military history, and occasionally, heroism. It was all very idealistic, but The Clash were deadly serious about everything they did. Here's Joe Strummer. I know that we change people's minds and we change directions of people's lives even. So I know that The Clash is, is doing something. I'm talking about preventing the world going backwards, finding a decent economic order where the poor are taken care of and is it everyone gets an even break. You know, I'm talking about getting the world round to that kind of sanity, which is chiefly what we're trying to do. Well, in The Clash, that's what we're trying to angle our songs at, in order to get people to think or 
at least discuss topics that relate to reality such as this because I want a dialogue I don't want a one way worshipping trip like yeah. a heavy metal band I want a dialogue I want feedback I want criticism I can take it we put ourselves up for it you know we raise the standard so we expect to be flayed here is the first ever Clash single which was released on March 18th 1977 it was inspired by a real life riot that took place in the Notting Hill area of London the previous September at the time institutional racism was a problem in Britain and there was a controversial police action at this annual carnival held by West London's Caribbean community. The song is White Riot. The first single from The Clash, White Riot, released on March 18, 1977. It was followed by a full album on April the 8th, a self-titled affair that was recorded over three weekends. It's a big hit in Britain, and it featured a single all about the evils of signing a major record label contract. The song was called Complete Control. The Clash, with their first of several pokes at their record company, and themselves, Complete Control, first issued on September 23rd, 1977. By the way, by the time that album was released, there had been two lineup changes in the band. Keith Levine had been dumped after five gigs, and original drummer Terry Chimes had given away to Topper Heaton. It's Terry on the album, but once the record was done, he split. And that kind of explains the cover of that first album. It's only Joe and Mick and Paul pictured. That's because at the time this photo was shot, The Clash didn't have a proper full-time drummer. And as a piece of trivia, one of the 207 guys they considered briefly for the gig was John Moss. John Moss would later surface as the drummer for Boy George and Culture Club. That first Clash album showed how versatile the Clash wanted to be. At rehearsal rehearsal, Joe Strummer was always introducing the band to non-punk sounds. Sure, they'd sit around listening to Ramones records and stuff, but the band also realized that punk had its limits. For the Clash, Ramones-style punk was fun... But once you mastered those three chords, where'd you go from there? That's when Joe would pull out something from Canadian Ronnie Hawkins for something a little bluesy and R&B-ish. Then he'd grab a little Bo Diddley, followed by Chuck Berry, and then his favorite, reggae, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Toots and the Maytals, Desmond Deckard, Burning Spears. Joe was once asked about his greatest musical inspirations, and his answer was simple. Black men, he said. And he was serious. The Clash would soon pick unlikely touring partners, including Bo Diddley and Grandmaster Flash. Here, for example, is another track from that first album. It's a cover of a Junior Marvin and Lee Scratch Perry song written about police and crime in Jamaica. It's called Police and Thieves. A hint of the dub and reggae that would show up on later Clash records, Police and Thieves, in that first Clash album. The attitude in that song requires just a little bit of explanation. The middle and late 70s were a tough time for young people in Britain. The country's finances were in trouble, so the Labour government of the time had invoked some severe austerity measures, and these measures hit the working classes very, very hard. Public sector and government workers were hit too. Wages, benefits, working conditions, they all took a hit. Naturally, this created some serious social turmoil. 
strikes and lockouts, high unemployment, falling standards of living, and a general sense of despair and alienation, especially amongst young people. There was that institutional racism that we talked about earlier. Some authorities were being quite enthusiastic when it came to using an anti-vagrancy law from 1824 to harass young blacks. And there were fascist elements creeping in from the margins. Organizations such as the National Front were looking for scapegoats for the problems faced by young working-class people. Their targets? Immigrants. This was the social environment into which the clash was introduced. And the band did what they could. They insisted that the price of their albums and their concert tickets be substantially lower than the prevailing rate. And they sung about the problems of the day. To bored and alienated kids in Margaret Thatcher's England, the clash seemed to be in touch with exactly how they were feeling. Another interesting thing about the first album, even though the band had a planet-wide record deal, was that CBS decided not to release this record in North America. It was the disco era, and a bunch of Freddy Cat executives thought that The Clash was just too raw and abrasive and crude and political for American tastes. So for two years, North American fans were forced to buy the higher-priced British import version. A hundred thousand copies were sold that way, making it, for a time, the biggest-selling import ever. CBS finally relented in 1979, but the result was a somewhat watered-down version with a different track listing that was supposed to be designed for American tastes. Whatever that meant. Then again, The Clash did have a rep as criminals. Their shows were often violent and venues were often damaged. On June 10th, 1977, Joe and Topper were arrested for spray-painting The Clash on a wall. Then they were fined 100 pounds for stealing a pillowcase from a Holiday Inn. And then they were fined 800 pounds for shooting at some expensive racing pigeons. And then McJones got into trouble over some cocaine possession. The second Clash album was entitled Give Em Enough Rope and was issued on November 10, 1978. One of the surprising things about this record was that it was produced by the guy who was best known for making records with bands like Blue Oyster Cult. And that, obviously, rubbed a few hardcore fans the wrong way. The album sounded different, too. The amateurish energy that was all over the first album was gone. Things were a little more polished and cleaner. Still, the record burns with righteous anger and is filled with new musical options for punk. Joe Strummer's lyrics covered everything from civil war to the drug trade to Palestinian terrorism. Love songs? Forget it. This idealistic, left-leaning stance was refreshing, but it no doubt limited the band's appeal to a wider audience. And you know what? The Clash didn't care. They had to do what they felt was right. Here, for example, is a song based on an experience the band had in Jamaica while staying at the Pegasus Hotel in Kingston. While walking around the docks one night, they had a rather interesting experience with some Rastafarians that they'd rather not repeat. Here's what Joe Strummer said to Rolling Stone after the release of Give Him Enough Rope. We've got loads of contradictions for you. We're trying to do something new. We're trying to be the greatest group in the world. And that also means the biggest. At the same time, we're trying to be radical. I mean, we never want to be really respectable, and maybe the two can't coexist, but we'll try. You know what helps us? We're totally suspicious of anyone who comes into contact with us. Totally. We aim to keep punk alive. Things would change drastically for The Clash with the next album. Not only would it become the record that would assure The Clash's reputation for all time, but it would also become one of the most influential records ever. And Joe Strummer was obviously a huge part of it. That story in a moment. By the time The Clash got around to recording their third album, their tastes had moved beyond the traditional punk boundaries. Ska, reggae, 
Calypso, disco, garage rock, rockabilly, even this new thing called rap, were all poached to help create a new and unique Clash sound. The band reached their creative peak in 1979 with a double record that featured 19 songs, some of which were inspired by a recent North American tour, while others came about just by listening to the music in the streets of their new headquarters in the Pimlico area of London. The album also followed Britain's famous Winter of Discontent. From late 1978 through to mid-1979, the country was paralyzed by a series of massive strikes and labor actions. It was so bad that the army had to be called out to provide scab labor. On the other hand, the tide had turned against growing racist sentiments. In 1978, The Clash headlined the Rock Against Racism concert, which saw 100,000 people march through the streets of London denouncing racist ideas, racist movements, and racist policies. That event was a turning point in the attitudes held by young people in the UK. Some of the anger on The Clash's third album was fueled by their recent split with manager Bernie Rhodes and all the lawsuits and debt that followed that. The album itself was recorded just over a few days. In fact, 12 of the 19 songs were bashed out over three days in August 1979. The record, which had the working title of The New Testament, was produced by Guy Stevens, who was much more concerned with the feel of the album than technical perfection. Now, Here's an excellent example of what I mean. First day in the studio, Guy told the band to warm up with a song called Brand New Cadillac. Go ahead and warm up, he said. We'll start in a moment. But as The Clash started playing, Guy rolled the tape machines. And when they were done, he said, right, that's done. Next song. And The Clash were kind of confused. You can't use that take, they said. It's, it's all wrong. Listen to the tempo. Listen to how we speed up as we get closer to the end. Stevens just smiled and said, all rock and roll speeds up. Next song, please. See what I mean about the song speeding up? And that's live off the floor of the studio. No overdubs, no second chances. Because, you know, when The Clash was on, they didn't need to do it again. The Clash recorded so many good songs with Guy Stevens that they demanded that CBS allow them to release a double album. But then someone pointed out that the average Clash fan didn't have that much money, and a double album would probably be too expensive for them. So a compromise was hammered out. The album would be released as a double, but packaged like a single. The Clash also succeeded in having a lower-than-normal price slapped on the record. And in exchange, the band agreed to a lower royalty rate. So in other words, they gave up making money on the record just so more fans could buy it. And they were serious, by the way. Even though this album made them world-famous, The Clash continued to draw a salary of just $200 a week per man. In other words, The Clash knew firsthand what it was like to scrape by. And that's why they would often open back doors at concerts to let fans in who couldn't afford a ticket. And after the show, they'd sometimes meet up with the audience for a beer or two. And when their record company sent them a limousine as transportation to an event, they would do things like uh, donate the limo to the committee for some striking Welsh miners. When it finally came out on December 14, 1979, the album had a new name. It was entitled London Calling. We've already heard the title track, which, by the way, was inspired by some football chants in Soho. So let's try something else. Remember how I said that some of this music on this album was inspired by the music in the streets of Pimlico? There were a lot of Jamaicans living in that part of London, and they brought to England dub music. Slow, rumbly, bass-heavy sounds with a really deep groove. And The Clash picked up on that. This is called Guns of Brixton.
Guns of Brixton from The Clash's brilliant third album, London Calling. That was written by bass player Paul Simonon, by the way. What about that unlisted 19th song that appeared at the end of side four? Here's Joe Strummer to explain it. Training Vane was never on any sleeve, ever, because we, by the time we recorded it, the cover and the labels had been already printed. So we recorded it, mixed it, and we just managed to get it on the acetate before they printed the uh, vinyl. So on it went, but uh, we were too late to catch the, uh, the sleeve. The Clash, with an honest-to-God top 40 hit, Train in Vain, the unlisted track on London Calling. The song was supposed to have been released for free as one of those old-fashioned flexi-discs. The Clash wanted the New Musical Express to include it in one of their issues, but the publisher refused. So, with nowhere else to put it, The Clash stuck it at the end of London Calling. This album was hugely influential in so many ways, musically, lyrically, even politically. Here's a little-known fact. The Clash was keen to take their music to the kids in communist East Germany. They thought they'd be a shoo-in. After all, The Clash was all about the working class, the proletariat. They were quite socialist, even anti-capitalist, and in some cases, anti-West. So why wouldn't the communists allow them in? Well, it turns out that the East German secret police, the Stasi, had been monitoring The Clash and studying Joe Strummer's lyrics. And they concluded that The Clash was just a little too left-wing and a little too incendiary to be allowed into the country. Visas denied. Man, you know, when, you, when you're a little too far left for the communists, you got something going on, right? As the 1980s drew to a close, Rolling Stone magazine released their list of the best albums of the decade. Anyone remember what finished at number one? London Calling by The Clash. It beat up Paul Simon's Graceland. It beat up Remain in Light from the Talking Heads. It beat up Prince and Purple Rain and even the formidable Joshua Tree from U2. Joe Strummer and The Clash were at their best with London Calling, and they weren't done yet. Joe Strummer was one of the loudest voices punk ever heard. He was at his loudest when The Clash were together between 1976 and 1985. The Clash quickly got bored of playing three chords really fast and screaming about how life sucked. So they began incorporating ska and reggae and rockabilly and R&B and even rap into their sound. And the message in their lyrics ran deeper. Alienation, working class politics, racism, unemployment, police brutality. In other words, while they were around, The Clash changed the rules of punk, expanding its musical scope and its subject matter. After The Clash, nothing was the same. Without them, it's possible that punk would have died out with a whimper by the beginning of the 1980s. But because we had The Clash... Punk was able to evolve into a hundred different flavors. Modern-day punks owe a lot to The Clash. But you know who else credits them as being a major, major influence? U2, Pearl Jam, Beastie Boys, Rancid, Rage, 311, No Doubt, Midnight Oil, Manic Street Preachers, Bad Religion, Green Day, The Offspring. The Clash not only shaped the way they made music, but the way they looked at the world. And if you had to trace all this influence back to just one guy, that guy was Joe Strummer. Joe was always ready to join the fight. He once said, I think people ought to know that the Clash are anti-fascist, anti-violence, and anti-racist. We are against ignorance. I 
The Clash with Lost in the Supermarket, just a tiny slice of London calling, one of the greatest albums of all time. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of our look at the life of Joe Strummer, who died of a heart attack on December 22, 2002. On part one, we covered everything from where Joe was born through the release of London Calling and its effect on music in the early 1980s. On this show, we'll look at the fall of The Clash and some of the things Joe did until his death. And some of this stuff may surprise you, like the acting gigs, the movie soundtracks, the time Joe sang for the Pogues, and there's a lot more here, too. Let's pick it up with the release of The Clash's fourth album, a sprawling and sometimes messy record called Sandinista. That's an interesting title, and typically Clash, too. The Sandinista rebels, communist rebels, overthrew the government in Nicaragua in 1979. And being the left-wing guys that they were, The Clash adopted their name for their album as a badge of solidarity. And as they did with the last record, The Clash put their money where their mouths were. When their record company complained that they couldn't sell the double London Calling album for the price The Clash demanded, The Clash made all kinds of personal financial concessions so it could happen. Sandinista was even worse for the label. It was a triple album. CBS, the label, wanted nothing to do with the hassle of manufacturing a triple album. Until The Clash stepped forward and announced that they would forego any royalties on the first 200,000 copies. And this was really, really risky, considering that London Calling had only sold 180,000 copies to that point. But after London Calling, it sounded like there was nothing The Clash couldn't do. The problem was The Clash believed that to be true. So the band decided to draw upon an even larger array of influences, including gospel music and children's choirs. They were hoping to display vision. Instead, things got a little self-indulgent and confused, and not all the 36 songs sounded finished. But what could anyone expect? The album came out just 363 days after London Calling. The date was December 12, 1980. Clash from Sandinista. The song is The Magnificent Seven. And notice Joe Strummer's credible attempt at rapping? Now, you got to remember, this is 1980. Rap was so new that hardly anyone knew about it. Outside of releases by the Sugar Hill Gang and Curtis Blow, there were no rap records to buy. That's how in touch Joe and The Clash were with what was happening on the streets. Here's more from Sandinista. This is called The Call-Up. It's up to you not to be the call-up. I don't want to As the Sandinista album percolated through the punk community, Joe Strummer was in the news a lot. He was arrested for braining a violent member of the audience with his guitar during a show in Germany. He was always being quoted about how the clash was about to break up. There were fights about politics, outside projects, and over girlfriends. And then Joe disappeared. Vanished. In March 1982, Joe did a quick phone interview with a journalist, walked out the door, and wasn't seen for eight weeks. No one knew where he was, or even if he was all right. A tour was canceled, and the next Clash album, a record called Combat Rock, was released while he was AWOL. The date? May 14th, 1982. 
Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash from their 1982 album Combat Rock. It was inspired by Joe's then-girlfriend, Ellen Foley. So, who's Ellen Foley? You know the woman in the Meat Love song, Paradise by the Dashboard Light? Yeah, her. Joe's drummer returned to The Clash from Points Unknown quite suddenly in mid-May 1982. We're still kind of fuzzy on the details, but that whole disappearance thing sounds like it was a publicity stunt concocted by The Clash's manager. We hear that Joe spent his time away in France, apparently to help out another girlfriend bail her mother out of jail. That fall, September 1982, people really began to wonder about The Clash, and the thing that did it was a concert tour. In the past, The Clash had always toured on their own, but that fall, they elected to go on a big stadium and arena tour with The Who. Now keep in mind that The Clash was a band that once sang lyrics like No Beatles, Elvis, or Rolling Stones. That had been their slogan since 1977. And now they were going on tour with The Who? I mean, what's wrong with that picture? Things continued to deteriorate in The Clash through late 1982 and early 1983. And then suddenly, into September, the infamous Clash communique, issued by Joe Strummer. He essentially orchestrated a coup and fired Mick Jones. Joe kicked out the guy who founded The Clash in 1976. Mick Jones, the Clash guitarist we lost to artistic mania, I don't know. I'd have beg him to play the guitar. It's insane. I can't stand that kind of... I've, I've got too much... You know, the Clash has got a job on in trying to attempt its ridiculous aims. You know, I'm proud that we've got ridiculous aims, because at least we ain't going to underachieve. And we can't... I can't achieve these things if I have to beg the members of my band to play their instruments, you know. Mick Jones was the Clash guitar player, so I'm not going to walk around... I'm not going to walk around begging him to play the guitar. If he doesn't want to play the guitar, he can play a synthesizer. I don't care. Let him get on with it, but best not to drag... It's like It was like dragging a dead dog around on a bit of string, you know. How can you do anything or be anybody or... or try and live up to these ridiculous ideals when you're dragging a, a dead dog around on your back. It's insane. The Clash was never the same after Mick left. Joe tried to carry on with a new version of the band that featured two new members, but after one dismal and much ridiculed album, something called Cut the Crap in 1985, The Clash folded. There was no formal announcement, no farewell concert. They just quietly ceased to be. Mick Jones went on to form a band called Big Audio Dynamite, which had a good run in the late 80s and early 90s. But what about Joe? I'll tell you, and you'll be surprised at the number of times The Clash almost reunited over the years. The first time Joe Strummer asked Mick Jones to help him reform The Clash was in November 1985. Joe realized that he had made a mistake in firing Mick back in 1983, so he followed Mick on holiday to Spain to try and sort things out. But Mick basically laughed off the idea because he had his own thing going at the time. Still, they did work together, and this is something that many people forget. Joe Strummer and Mick Jones worked together in 1986 on a couple of songs from a movie called Sid and Nancy, which told the story of Sex Pistols bass player Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen. He's not credited anywhere, but Mick did have something to do with the two songs Joe contributed to the soundtrack. This is one of them. The first post-clash release from Joe Strummer. It's called Love Kills.
A couple of things came out of that movie about Sid Vicious. First of all, Joe Strummer and Mick Jones were able to keep up their songwriting partnership despite the past bad blood. In fact, two weeks before the movie hit the theaters in October 1986, Mick's band, Big Audio Dynamite, released their second album, Number 10 Upping Street. Eight of the 12 songs in the album featured contributions from Joe. Second, Joe found that movies were, apparently, in his blood. He hit it off so well with director Alex Cox that Joe was given roles in his next two movies. For example, in a 1987 movie called Walker, which told the story of a mercenary who marched into Nicaragua in the 19th century, Joe played a character called Fawcett. And this music in the background? That's from the soundtrack. Joe composed all the music for the movie. That same year, Joe appeared in another Alex Cox movie called Straight to Hell, which was a very, very weird western with pretty much no plot. He played a guy named Sims. This movie also featured acting roles by members of the Pogue and this American woman named Courtney Love. Courtney and Joe first met on the set of Sid and Nancy. If you've seen the opening sequence of that movie, we see a junkie sobbing over Nancy's body. That's actually Courtney. I know she looks a lot like Tina Yothers, but this is pre-nose job Courtney. In Straight to Hell, she plays somebody named Velma, but I digress here. For the rest of the 80s, there was more movie work for Joe, both in front of the camera and as a soundtrack composer. Anyone remember a Keanu Reeves movie called Permanent Record? Joe did the soundtrack for that one. That's where this music comes from. There was a very good movie in 1989 called Mystery Train. Joe did that one too. He started as a guy with an Elvis thing. But what about releasing solo records? Well, there was one called Earthquake Weather that he recorded in 1989 with his new band, which he called the Rockabilly Latino War, but it pretty much sank out of sight. The tour that went along with that album didn't go well either. Joe was exhausted and he lost 24,000 pounds that time out. This brings us to about 1990. And you know what happened next? Mick Jones came calling, suggesting that he and Joe reform The Clash. But it never happened. And you want to know why? It was because Joe was stubborn. He believed that if The Clash were to rise again, it would have to be just as it was back in the late 70s and early 80s. Joe and Mick out front, Paul on bass, and Topper on drums if he was sober and straight enough. But even failing that, Terry Chimes would do. But most crucially, the reformed Clash would have to be managed by Bernie Rhodes, their manager from the old days, and also the manager that tried to sue the bejesus out of them when he was fired. The other guys would have nothing to do with that plan, so that reformation never happened. Meanwhile, Joe was fighting with his record label. It was kind of a catch-22 situation. The label expected another album, but they realized that the returns would never cover the expenses or Joe's advance. The moment Joe stepped into a recording studio, that would trigger a series of events that would involve the label kicking in a ton of money. And since, in their eyes, Joe was over, they didn't want to do that. And this dispute lasted nearly a decade. Come back to that later. So you know what Joe did to keep himself busy? He joined the Pogues. In 1991, they fired their singer, Shane McGowan, for being a drunk. And because Joe had done some studio work with the band, he was asked to fill in. So he did. Joe Strummer, during his stint as the lead singer with the Pogues in the early 1990s. I don't know, accordion kind of works, doesn't it? Remember the Mexican standoff between Joe Strummer and his record company that I mentioned earlier? 
This explains why there were no Strummer solo records for nearly a decade. It took eight long years to sort things out, and in the end, Joe and Sony reached a compromise. They would release him from his contract on the stipulation that should The Clash ever get back together, The Clash would record for Sony. Meanwhile, Joe could go on and do anything he wanted, which was fine with Joe, so he set off to put together a new band. There was an aborted attempt with a group called Machine, and then Joe tried to get something going with Bez, ex of the Happy Mondays, but that didn't work out. But in the end, he pulled together a band he called the Mescaleros, and they were pretty good, even when they were playing old Clash songs. In 1999, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros released an album called Rock Art and the X-Ray Style. This was the first single. It's called Tony Adams. Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros from 1999. There would be one more solo album before he died, a 2001 record called Global Agogo. Meanwhile, the rumors of a Clash reunion would not go away. Back in the middle 90s, a story circulated that the organizers of the Lollapalooza Festival went to the band and basically asked them to name their price. They could have whatever they wanted to reunite for a turn with Lollapalooza. I hear it was really, really close. One source told me that they were so close to a deal that they had already started casting people for some kind of Clash video. But of course, it never happened. Then there was an event on November 16, 2002, when Joe and the Mescaleros played a benefit for a fire brigade in London. Mick Jones was in the crowd, and he stepped on stage to play a couple of songs with the band. That marked the first time since 1983 that Joe and Mick had performed together. And when it was all over, both agreed that it had felt very, very, very good. What no one knew at the time, though, was that this was going to be Joe's final gig. Anyway, rumors started to circulate. Even Joe started thinking out loud, saying that a reunion was a possibility, but not as some kind of, you know, dog and pony nostalgia show. If The Clash were ever to do it again, they'd do it right with a new album and new songs and a proper tour. But here was the best ever prospect for a Clash reunion. Their induction ceremony into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New York on March 10th, 2003. There were strong, strong hints that The Clash would reunite for the occasion to play up to three songs. And wouldn't that have been cool? However, Joe never made it to the ceremony. On December 22, 2002, he took his dogs out for a walk around his home in Somerset, England. And sometime after they came back, his wife, Lucinda, found Joe on the kitchen floor. A sudden heart attack, probably the result of an unknown hereditary condition. Joe was just 50. The world was shocked. Yalla, 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 yalla. Yalla, yalla, yalla. Yalla, 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 yalla. Jumbo lie on the barrel. Yalla, 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 yalla. Yalla, yalla, yalla. The funeral procession wound its way through London, deliberately passing some of the places where the clash used to play. The simple coffin was decorated with stickers that said things like vinyl rules and Question authority. Ask me anything. The funeral was a very private affair held at the West London Crematorium. And as everybody headed inside, two dozen fully uniformed firemen, the same firemen that Joe had helped out with that benefit back in November, stood at attention. In fact, they had dispatched a fire truck to lead the procession. And guests at the funeral included the rest of the clash and the cream of British rock and roll. Courtney Love was there, too. She and Joe had been friends since 1987 when they met on the set of Straight to Hell. 
When filming wrapped up, Courtney couldn't afford to go home. So Joe bought her a plane ticket back to the States. Lucinda, Joe's wife, asked people not to send flowers. Instead, she asked that people donate money in Joe's name to an organization dedicated to the AIDS crisis in Africa. Fans are also being asked to plant a tree in Joe's name for the Future Forests Environmental Charity. This is a pretty cool idea. The trees planted by Future Forests are supposed to help offset the pollution caused by all the manufacturing and disposal of materials that go into making compact discs. Joe and The Clash were special. They were idealistic, they were conflicted, and sometimes confused. They were both reactionary and revolutionary. They championed the working class and the poor and sneered at consumerism and the privileged, yet they had no trouble selling their songs to TV commercials to advertise things like Levi's jeans and Jaguar cars. Think their previous proclamations came back to haunt them? You bet they did. But they will be missed. Without the energy and the vision of the clash and the risks they took, punk may have fizzled out completely at the end of the 1970s. Anyone who treasures three-chord punk-inspired rock and everything that came after Take some time to reflect on Joe and the Clash. Joe came out fighting, and he fought the good fight. There are people listening to this show that are wondering why such a big deal is being made over the death of this Joe Strummer guy. You may be too young to remember how big and how important the Clash was to an entire generation of people. Trust me on this. To many, Joe Strummer was their equivalent of Kurt Cobain, just as Joey Ramone might have been. That first generation of punk rockers has now reached the age where their idols are starting to disappear. And this generation thought that they were going to live forever. So it's really sobering stuff. I met Joe a couple of times. The last time he was playing a special live radio broadcast and several people were crammed into the studio waiting for him. And not just old punkers who had grown up and traded their mohawks for suits. There were a lot of young fans there eager to see this legend. So Joe stumbles in. He's late. He's hungover. He's miserable. He's carrying this battered guitar. And he's, he's really kind of grumpy because, you know, it's too noisy for him to tune his guitar with all these people hanging around. So suddenly he jumps up, stalks out of the studio onto the street where he began to warm up and play in front of a Starbucks store. I'll never forget it. It's a Saturday afternoon, so the sidewalk's pretty crowded. And out there on Young Street in Toronto was one of the greatest living punks playing solo for people as they walked by. I remember hearing one passerby saying, you know, he's pretty good. He sounds like a lot, you know, that guy in, what's that, London Calling? If they'd only known. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 